It's now my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, the ninth annual Sokolow Book Prize winner, Mr. Omer Bartov. Omer Bartov is the John P. Birkeland Distinguished Professor of European History at Brown University. He's the author of several books on the Holocaust and genocide, including Murder in Our Midst and Mirrors of Destruction. He has also written for the New Republic, uh, the Wall Street Journal, the Nation, and the New York Times Book Review. And he won the ninth annual Sokolow Book Prize. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Omer Bartov. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you so much for this introduction. And thank you so much for the prize. And especially thank you all for being here. I can't quite see you all because of the lights, but um, I'm very grateful that you've come to hear this talk. Um, what I will try to speak about for the next 30, 40 minutes um, is the book that was just um, uh, mentioned now, uh, Anatomy of a Genocide the life and death of a town called Buchach. Um, I started researching uh, this book about 20 years ago, and I spent the last uh, 10 years almost exclusively writing it. Uh, so it's been a very long time of engaging with this one little community in Eastern Europe. Uh, over those 20 years, I traveled to nine countries, I used uh, documents in nine languages. I culled documents from over 50 archives. And I used personal testimonies and interviews, courtroom evidence and memoirs from hundreds of Jews, Poles, Ukrainians, and Germans who all come into play uh, in the story. At the time when I began researching this, uh, the early 1990s, uh, several important events were happening. Uh, the first, as some of you may recall and, other, and others um, probably read about, uh, was the collapse of communism, the collapse of the communist system. Um, it was a time in which we were told that history had come to an end, and we were now to expect a much happier and better world. Uh, it was a victory of liberalism and capitalism. And right after that, uh, two genocides occurred. Uh, one in Bosnia in 1992, and one in Rwanda in 1994. Uh, altogether, over, well over a million uh, people were murdered. Uh, the genocide in Rwanda had the distinction of being the fastest genocide in history. About 800,000 people murdered in 10 weeks mostly by machetes and fire. Not gunfire, but actual fire, often in their own churches. Um, so the happy era that we were entering into uh, changed somewhat. It was also a time in which the Holocaust, uh, for the first time, many years after it occurred, was internationally recognized as an important, a major event, not only in Jewish history or in German history, not only in the history of World War II, but also in the history of the 20th century. Um, and that took a very long time. We tend to forget that in the 1950s or 60s or 70s, um, the Holocaust was not considered to be a particularly important event. And if you go back and look at history books, um, written about uh, even Nazi Germany, World War II, uh, you would be hard put to even find the word uh, Jewish extermination or Auschwitz in the index. So it was only in the 1980s that the Holocaust started uh, being recognized as a major event, that you cannot write the history of World War II without also writing about it, and only in the 1990s that it got this international recognition. But the way the Holocaust was understood at the time was very different from the way that we looked and saw what had happened in such genocides as Rwanda and Bosnia. The Holocaust was seen as a case of industrial killing. It was a case in which we were told, and I myself used the term industrial killing as a subtitle of one of my books, 
uh, in which in order to be able to kill such large numbers of people uh, across an entire continent, there were several important preconditions. The first was the need to dehumanize the, the community that was about to be murdered, to declare that those people were entirely alien to us, that they were not part of our circle of solidarity, uh, that they were subhuman, um, that they were not only different from us, they were not only subjected to the same morality, but also that they were insidious and dangerous and therefore had to be removed. And the second was to create a system, it was argued, which would distance between, create a distance between the perpetrators and the victims, would make contact between the victims and the perpetrators as minimal as possible, and would disperse responsibility to the extent that no one in particular would be directly responsible for the killing. The perfection of that system was the creation of the extermination camp. And the extermination camp really meant that you could um, identify, let's say, a neighborhood in Berlin, in Grunewald, in a, a neighborhood where Jews lived, and one day, uh, these people, nice people, living, middle-class people living in that uh, neighborhood would be seen by their neighbors walking with their little suitcases to the nearby train station, boarding the train, and disappearing. And people knew that they went to the east, nach Osten, but they didn't know exactly what happened to them, and they preferred not to ask. The people themselves who were on the train, by the time they arrived at their destination, no longer looked like the nice middle-class people they had been because the train journey itself was highly brutalizing. And so by the time they arrived, they had already shed much of their attributes as normal middle-class human beings. And then once they arrived there, then there would be a process whereby they would be shorn of their hair, uh, they would lose their clothes, they would, be, um, they would run uh, into gas chambers, they would be locked into the gas chambers, and after, if they were lucky, after 20 minutes or an hour, but sometimes it would take longer, they would be dead. And then they would be either buried in mass graves, they would be uh, cremated, and they would no longer be there. And no one in this entire process was completely responsible for it. The people who gave the orders were not on the ground. The people who were feeding the gas into the, into the gas chambers were not involved in shipping the Jews to their destination. The people running the trains were not, uh, um, um, did, did not see the killing and did not know where those people had come from. So there was a compartmentalization of the entire process. The commandant of Sobibor in Treblinka, um, Franz Stangl, who was an Austrian policeman before the war, uh, described this process. Uh, he used to watch it sitting on his white horse on a hill, seeing the Jews running uh, into the gas chambers. And he said in an interview several decades later, he said, to me, they looked like lemmings. So this kind of process, the, this kind of mechanization, industrialization of death, of creating factories that produce corpses, was seen as the ideal um, way of creating modern genocide. That is, that there is no direct connection between the killers and the killed, and they're never seen as human beings. Now that, of course, sounds very different from what happened in Bosnia and Rwanda, where much of the killing was done by neighbors. People were killing people they knew. These were very intimate kinds of killings. I myself was involved in many ways in talking about the Holocaust in those terms. But I became, especially when I saw uh, or read about the uh, genocides in Bosnia and Rwanda, I became uncomfortable 
with this kind of understanding of the Holocaust, not because it didn't happen, but it was not the only way that it happened. And in fact, as we now know, only about half of the victims of the Holocaust were actually killed in extermination camps. And even of those who were killed in extermination camps, many of them did not come from these kind of neighborhoods that I described in Central Europe, from Paris or from Berlin, but came from Eastern Europe. And there the killing looked completely different. And so I thought that I wanted to understand what was the nature of the encounter between the perpetrators and the victims in those sites of killing, which in fact uh, were the sites where half of the victims of the Holocaust, approximately three million people, were killed. And I asked myself, how can I understand it? And because the Holocaust was a very large event across an entire continent with hundreds of thousands of people being uh, moved around, with millions of people being killed, uh, you could not study all of that um, in minute details. And I thought that the best way to try and understand it would be to focus on one site, one place. And the place I chose was the town of Buchach. Now, I could have ch chosen many other places. Uh, Buchach is in Eastern Europe, and it was important to choose a place in Eastern Europe because that was where most of the Jews lived before the war and where most of the Jews were murdered. But there were some specific reasons for choosing this town. I knew something about this town of Buchach. Um, as a child growing up in Israel, uh, I read uh, a very famous author that most of you, I think, don't know. Um, uh, Shmuel Yosef Agnon, his name is. Uh, S.Y. Agnon. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1966. He wrote in Hebrew. And it's very hard to translate him. Some of his uh, works have come out uh, in English but the translations are not particularly satisfying. He was born in Buchach, and although he left it when he was 21 years old, before World War I, much of what he wrote, a little bit like James Joyce, who left Dublin, as you know, as a young man, uh, much of what he wrote was about that town of Buchach. And he wrote about it as a specific site, but he also wrote about it as a microcosm of the entire civilization, Jewish civilization in Eastern Europe, particularly that of small towns. And I greatly admire this author, and I thought that if I don't know much about the town itself, apart from what he wrote about it, so why not choose this one? Once I started looking at the town, I realized that two other very interesting, important characters in the story came from it. One you probably heard of is Simon Wiesenthal, the so-called Nazi hunter, who later after the war set up an office in Vienna and looked for Nazi perpetrators. I found in, in his archive, which is a two-bedroom apartment in Vienna, uh, a very thick folder which included the information on all the perpetrators who were involved in the murder of the Jews in his own hometown. So he was particularly interested in finding those people. And that was helpful for me, of course, as well. And the third person uh, is called Immanuel Ringenblum. You may not have heard of him. He was a very important historian in the 1920s and 30s of Jewish-Polish relations. And during the war, he was in the Warsaw Ghetto. And in the Warsaw Ghetto, he established an archive, which was called the Onek Shabbat or Onek Shabbos archive, that was to document what was happening in the ghetto itself. He did not survive the war. He, his son and his wife were denounced. They were in hiding and were murdered. But um, two-thirds of his archive were discovered. And it's because of that archive that we know actually what happened in the ghetto, because they, of the documentation that they collected and hid in, um, in milk cans underground. The third milk can that has not been found is apparently under the Chinese uh, uh, embassy in Warsaw, and one can't dig there unless one finds all kinds of other things. <laughs> um, but there was a final reason why I chose Buchach, 
and it probably was the first, and that is that my mother was also a child in Buchach. She wasn't born in Buchach, she was born in a beautiful small village near Buchach, along the banks of the Dniester in Kosmiezin. But she spent uh, the first um, 11 years of her life in Buchach. Uh, in 1935, she, uh, her parents, and her uh, two younger brothers uh, left Buchach and went to Palestine. Had they stayed for another four years, they would not have come out. And none of the rest of my extended family, as all families were at the time, who stayed there uh, came out. So no one survived who remained there. Um, and when I then thought that um, I should begin this project of trying to understand what happened in Buchach in 1995, I decided to interview my mother about her childhood. And I went to her kitchen with my then six-year-old son and uh, six-month-old daughter and turned on a tape recorder and said, Ima, tell me about your childhood. And she spoke for 90 minutes straight. It was as if she had just been waiting for me to ask that question. <laughs> and I was by then 41 years old, and she was 71, and I did not have to ask any more questions. The whole story was there. And it was a very nice story about fond memories of a good childhood. It was not a story about anti-Semitism, it was not a story about fear, and it was also not a story only about Jews. She grew up in a home where mostly Yiddish was spoken, although they spoke Polish as well. She went to a Polish school because it was a public school, so my grandfather di didn't have to pay tuition, and she studied in Polish. And her girlfriends were Ukrainian, and so they played in Ukrainian. She remembered going to the forest, picking mushrooms and wild berries. These were good memories. And after that conversation, I understood that my first question was insufficient. Because my first question was about the encounter between the perpetrators, who were the Germans, and the Jews. But in fact, the question was a bit more complex. Because that town was not, as Jews had imagined it, a shtetl in which only Jews lived. It was like all those shtetlach, all those towns, it had a mixed population. And in that case, it was a town of Poles, Ukrainians, and Jews. And those Poles, Ukrainians, and Jews had lived side by side for over 400 years in that town. And it was the relations between these three groups and the changes in that relationship that determined the nature of how the Holocaust occurred in that place. The encounter was not simply between the perpetrators and the Jews. It was between everyone there. How their behavior, how their relationships, as they had evolved before, determined the nature of the event once the killing began. So this was something that I began to understand already in the 1990s, and it took me on a long journey into medieval Poland, early modern Poland, the history of that town and the history of relations between people in this one town, which is similar in many ways to hundreds of other towns, all the way from the Baltic to the Balkans. This swath of area, this entire swath of towns, uh, which had mixed populations. In this case, it was Poles, Ukrainians, and Jews. In others, it was Belarusians, Lithuanians, Hungarians, Romanians, and so forth. But always a mix of populations. So I'll tell you just a few things about uh, the history of Buchach, and then I'll get to the, to the core of the story. So Buchach, uh, actually the first uh, document from Buchach dates back to 2060, so it goes back to the Middle Ages. It was, a borderland <coughs> Sorry, it was a borderland town in what was called the uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. It was a great empire that most people don't remember. Um, and it, it, it covered most of Eastern Europe, what is now Eastern Europe, some of Western Russia, Western Ukraine, and so forth. Uh, and it was a borderland town in the sense that it was fortified, and it was built, like many other towns in that region, to ward off 
the Cossacks and Tatars from the east and the Ottoman Turks from the south. But in 1772, uh, Poland started being partitioned by the larger empires that had now um, emerged around it. Uh, There was the Austrian Empire, there was the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire was declining, and there was the rising German Empire. And that part of Poland in which uh, Buczacz was located was torn off and annexed to Austria and given the name Galicia, or Galician, or Galicia. Uh, The name was given for dynastic reasons to justify what was basically taking another country's territory. And Galicia became now the easternmost and poorest province of this vast uh, multi-ethnic empire, the Habsburg Empire. The majority of the population in the eastern parts of Galicia, what was called Eastern Galicia, the majority of the population were Ukrainians. At the time, they were called Ruthenians. The second largest group were Poles, and the largest concentration of Jews in the empire were also in Galicia, about 10% of the population of that province. That empire also went the way of all empires uh, at the end of World War I, and then Poland was resurrected, um, and I'll get to that in a moment. Now, during all this period, from the 16th century at least, that we know, these three groups were living there side by side. Now, we should not imagine this um, uh, inter-ethnic community uh, in modern terms as being a pluralistic community or as being multicultural. Uh, These were specific religious groups uh, that had clear ethnic um, identifiers, Um, And they told each other and told themselves stories about themselves, who they were and how they related to others. But they also lived constantly side by side. They interacted with each other in the workplace, in the marketplace, later on in schools. They often spoke each other's languages. And from 1800, from, from from 1700 on, uh, throughout the 18th century and the 19th century, These were peaceful areas. There was a great deal of violence there in the 17th century, much less so in the 18th century, very little in the 19th century. So much of the time, we have often this view of Eastern Europe as being made of people who are constantly trying to kill each other. It was a rather safe place where different groups lived side by side, not always harmoniously, but they did not know any other reality. This was the way things always were. They were identified also by the socioeconomic status. Different groups did different things. And there was resentment, there was jealousy, but there was not much violence. So what happened? So what happens is that in the second half of the 19th century, nationalism arrives in this area. And nationalism takes these religious and ethnic identities and turns them one against the other. Polish nationalism, which was the first in this area, tried to explain why Poles are living in areas that are majority Ukrainian. And the argument was that the Poles had a civilizing mission. They had gone to the wild lands of the East, they had built cities, they had brought culture, and that in fact those Ruthenians, as the Poles preferred to call them, were a sort of um, slightly lesser version of Poles, and that once they were civilized, they would be transformed into Poles, and that would become part of the Polish Empire. The Ukrainian narrative was that the Ukrainians were the, the indigenous population of that area that had been occupied by the Poles, had been enslaved by them, enslaved by them, exploited by them, and that the Poles did that with the help of the Jewish lackeys, those who were actually running the estates for them, running the distilleries for them, leasing uh, estates from the Poles, because the Polish aristocracy preferred being in Warsaw, doing politics and having fun, than being in those remote areas in the East. And the Jewish narrative was that the Jews had come there to bring culture, reading, and commerce. The difference between these three narratives was 
that the Polish and Ukrainian nationalizers spoke about their right to the land. And the question was, who does it belong to? Does it belong to the Poles or does it belong to the Ukrainians? The Jews did not make a claim on the land. And when finally nationalism comes among the Jews, and it comes later, and it's influenced greatly by Polish and Ukrainian nationalism, it becomes Zionism. And Zionism, when it appears there, is indeed ethnic and territorial, but the territory that he talks about is not the territory in which those Jews live, but the territory of Palestine. And what unifies the Polish and Ukrainian national narratives is one thing. They are competing over the land, but in the vision of the nation state that they want to create, there is no place for the Jews. The Poles want a nation state for Poles. The Ukrainians want a nation state for Ukrainians. They're fighting over that land, but the Jews don't feature in that uh, future prospect. Now, as this was happening from the 1880s, 1890s, there is still there's growing antagonism, rhetorical antagonism, but there's no violence. And the main reason why there's no violence is that they're still living under the Austrian Empire. And the Austrian Empire, although it allows these nationalisms to grow, cannot allow them to start fighting each other because it is not a nation state. It is an empire made up of many different groups. And it has to find a way, and it manages not so badly, to balance between the different groups. All this changes in 1914. When World War I breaks out, and we tend to, when we think about World War II and the Holocaust, we tend to forget about World War I, which was crucial to understanding everything that happens afterwards. World War I in those areas was extremely destructive, devastating of cities and of populations. Uh, so not only were there hundreds of thousands of soldiers killed just in that vicinity of Buchach, in that area of Galicia, but there was a great deal of violence against civilians. The Russian army is particularly uh, prone to violence against Jewish communities. Uh, Buchach is occupied twice by the Russian army, and in both cases, there are widespread pogroms against the Jewish population there, including mass rapes and killings and maiming and so forth. The population in that area is exposed to this violence on a large scale for the first time and is exposed also to certain groups being identified as those that you can exercise violence against with impunity. Not only that, but at the end of World War I, Although, uh, as you know, uh, the Allies win, the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapses. And with the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a second war breaks out in these uh, regions between Poles and Ukrainians. In, 1918, the, in November 1918, when the empire collapses, the Ukrainians claim now that this land is theirs. The, Pole mobil the Poles mobilize their forces, and for a year, these two groups are fighting each other. That war includes a, a great deal of violence against civilians, many massacres, including several pogroms against Jews, both by Poles, particularly there's a, a, a very well-known pogrom in Lemberg or, or Lvov, Lviv, in the capital of this area, uh, and in other places. Um, so there are pogroms by, both by Poles and by Ukrainians, also against Jewish communities. So that by 1921, when Poland is resurrected and is created now as an independent uh, nation-state, Polish nation-state, it in fact is ruling over large areas in which Poles are a minority. And those areas of what had been um, uh, Eastern Galicia and now are called Eastern Poland uh, have a majority of Ukrainians who are deeply resentful of the fact that they are now ruled by uh, the Poles. And whenever Ukrainians try to uh, educate their own people in uh, Ukrainian culture and to promote Ukrainian nationalism, the Polish police and Polish military suppress that, often very brutally. That leads to the creation of a Ukrainian underground. Uh, the most important organization that is created in 1929 
called, uh, the acronym is OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. It's a terrorist organization. It is uh, influenced increasingly by other fascist organizations in Eastern Europe. After 1933, when Hitler comes to power, it's also supported by Nazi Germany. And its goal is to create a Pole-free and Jew-free Ukraine. And it's biding its time and it's waiting for the moment that it, could, that it will be able to realize these goals. Poland also becomes increasingly anti-Semitic, particularly after the death of the Polish dictator or authoritarian ruler, Pilsudski, Józef Pilsudski, in 1935. Um, there are more and more rules against Jews. Jews can no longer go to university. They, they cannot work in the professions. Um, and at the same time, it becomes increasingly difficult for Jews to leave this area. Um, the, the main um, um, uh, direction to which Jews from these areas went from Galicia was to North America. But as you probably know, there are already laws limiting immigration from Eastern Europe, particularly of Jews, to the United States as of 1924, and these restrictions are growing over time. This is the time now also of the Great Depression. Nobody wants refugees. There's unemployment. Uh, there are all kinds of echoes of today. Um, at the same time, the second uh, area to which Jews might go is Palestine. Uh, Palestine is now ruled by the British. There's a British mandate there. Uh, the, the British in the Balfour Declaration uh, during World War I had declared that they would uh, facilitate the creation of a Jewish home in Palestine. But in 1936, there's an Arab rebellion in Palestine because the Arab population feels that its land is being encroached upon by Jewish immigrants, and the British um, begin enforcing gr greater and greater restrictions on Jewish immigration to Palestine. So the Jews in towns such as Buchach are trapped. They can't leave, and they're not wanted where they are. And that's a situation when the war begins, 1939. Now, in 1939, the war begins, or Hitler can actually attack Poland because he has an alliance with the Soviet Union, the, f the, the infamous uh, Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact. That means that Eastern Poland goes to the Soviet Union. This is the agreement between Hitler and Stalin. So in 1939, it's not the Germans who invade this part. It's taken over and occupied by the Soviets. And they rule this area between 39 and 41. And the Soviets do what they do best. First of all, they nationalize the economy, and an economy that was going pretty badly already. As I said, it was a really poor area. Entirely collapses. Uh, the nationalization is done in a really bad way, and now there's shortage of food, there's long lines for bread, for milk, and so forth. Secondly, the Soviets target their social and political enemies as they see them, and they begin waves of deportations of people that they perceive some are their enemies and some are just defined as enemies. They begin by deporting large numbers of Poles, the Polish elite, uh, people from military families, the aristocracy. Um, then they target Jews and they deport large numbers of Jews, um, either social enemies because they may have factories or shops, or candy shops or whatever, they're capitalists, or because they're political enemies, particularly if they're Zionists. And third, they start arresting and deporting Ukrainians. Uh, the Ukrainians actually had welcomed the Soviets when they came in because they saw that as liberation from Polish rule and, and as unifying Western Ukraine with the rest of Ukraine, which was already under a, a Soviet republic. But they soon discovered that this is not exactly what they expected, and Ukrainian nationalists begin an insurgency, or attempt an insurgency, against the Soviets, and thousands of them are incarcerated in jails right before... Germany invades the Soviet Union. June 22, 1941, the Wehrmacht uh, attacks the Soviet Union. The KGB, or the NKVD at the time, the Soviet secret police, gets an order to either take the political prisoners along or to execute them. They choose, obviously, the second option because it's faster and easier, 
and they execute thousands of political prisoners in local jails in Galicia. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them are Ukrainian nationalists. And as the Soviets leave, and before the Germans come in, this first bout of killing by the Soviet police is followed by a wave of pogroms where thousands of Jews are killed in their own towns, in the streets, by Ukrainian nationalists and other uh, individuals um, under the argument that the Jews had collaborated with the Soviets in the killing of Ukrainian nationalists. A line which is obviously also promoted by the Germans who speak about Judeo-Bolshevism as the main enemy of Nazi Germany. So, as of that moment, we see this vast wave of killings, first by the police, then by the people and the nationalists and a variety of Ukrainian militias. After a few weeks, the Germans impose order. And when the Germans impose order, they begin to carry out their goal. And the goal of the Germans in Galicia is to murder the 500,000 Jews who live there. And in order to do that, they create outposts of uh, the security police, of the Sicherheitspolizei, Zippo as it's called. Now these security police outposts uh, are very thinly uh, distributed and have very small numbers of personnel. The one that is in charge of the area in which Buchach uh, uh, is, is in another town in Chortkov, it's a, it's a region. Uh, the Buchach-Chortkov region. Uh, there are about 20 policemen there. These are members of Gestapo, Waffen-SS, uh, criminal police, regular police. Uh, about 20 men. Not all of them are even from Germany. Some are ethnic Germans from Czechoslovakia, from Lithuania, from Poland. These 20 men, between not right af after the, the outpost is established, but about a year later, as of late summer 1942 until early summer 1943, murdered 60,000 Jews in this region. This is almost, it's over 95% of the Jewish population of this region. Now obviously they cannot do that on their own because uh, 20 men cannot round up and kill 60,000 people. What they do is they set up an entire apparatus that facilitates that killing. And the way they do it, they transform the Ukrainian nationalist militias that were formed right after the Soviets left into police auxiliary battalions. And those police auxiliaries, which number hundreds of men, are used to sweep into towns, surround the towns, then round up the Jews, and either then put them on trains that will take them to the extermination camp Bezhets, which is on the Polish-Ukrainian border and, and is the designated camp for the Jews of Galicia, or as of the end of 1942 until summer 1943, to kill them in situ, to kill them in synagogues, in cemeteries, in nearby forests, in creeks, right around or exactly where they live. And even those who are initially rounded up and uh, put into trains, these are not the kind of roundups that I described in, let's say, the case of Grunewald. They're very brutal events in which hundreds of people are killed on the way to the train. In small towns where it, people are not simply looking from behind their windows to see where their neighbors are being taken, they're seeing their neighbors being shot on the street under their windows. So, the killing process means that there are, there's a German apparatus that organizes the population in the area to assist it in killing one group, in this case, the Jews. As I said, the killing begins only about a year after the outpost is organized. That means that during that year, there is a great deal of interaction between everyone. Now, the Ukrainians, the Poles, and the Jews have known each other long before. Their children go to school together, they work in the same place, they, as I said, they often speak each other's languages. The Germans during that year also get to know the Jews quite well 
before they kill them. Jews work as babysitters, as maids, as cooks, as dentists, as doctors, as carpenters, as shoemakers. They come in and out of German homes. They know the Germans by name, and the Germans know them by name. Then they are killed. But this is not anonymous killing. This is killing of people that you had already gotten to know, and the people who are being killed know the people who are killing them, often by name. Now, once most of the Jews have been killed, which is in June 1943, uh, Galicia as a whole, and Bucha specifically, is declared Judenrein, clean of Jews. There are, in fact, still thousands of Jews working in labor camps or hiding, uh, but the vast majority have been killed. Once that is um, accomplished, Ukrainian militias start implementing their goal, which has nothing to do with German policies. They start abandoning units controlled by, uh, by the Germans, uh, and they um, begin ethnic cleansing of the Polish population. And so, by the end of the German occupation, going into the, uh, the return of the Soviets in July 1944, uh, this area is transformed from a multi-ethnic area, as it had been uh, for hundreds of years, into a homogeneous area made up only of Ukrainians. It remains like that until today, and not only is it... Um, now purely Ukrainian, it also has very little memory and very little commemoration, both of the populations who had lived there and of the way in which they were murdered. So let me just uh, give you a few of my uh, quick conclusions, if you like, or what I learned from the study um, that I think... Um, um, helps us understand aspects of the Holocaust, more generally of genocide, and I would say also of social relations in general uh, in ways that we could not understand when we look at these events from the top and not from the bottom, not how they actually occur in a certain site. So first I would say that unlike our previous understanding, the genocidal encounter between perpetrators and victims on the local level was intimate. It was not detached. So it was not the way I described the extermination camps. It was in, in many ways exactly the opposite. The killers and their prey knew each other before the killing began. It was also, unlike many arguments that there were, what did people know because the extermination camps were secret, did the Germans know about it? All of this is beside the point when we look at uh, these events because the killing was public, Everybody saw it. Everybody knew what was happening. Uh, you could hear the, the gunfire from one hill or another. Uh, you could see the bodies on the street. People, eyewitnesses report, remembering going, that they were going to school in the morning and the street was full of bodies. There were babies who'd been thrown out of balconies and the brains were spattered on the road as they were going to school. So everything is extremely public, known, and you know also the people who had just been killed. Uh, this, and to me, this is very important, this means also that the categories that we created, speaking about genocide and about the Holocaust, that they're victims, perpetrators, and bystanders, don't really hold water in the case of such local killings. Because there are no bystanders. Nobody was standing by. Everybody is engaged in one way or another. Some might be collaborators and actually partake in the killing. Some may be altruistic and shelter and help. Most people are somewhere in the middle. Sometimes they do one thing, sometimes they do another. Many people, I would say the majority of people, profit from the genocide because people are killed but their property is left behind. These are poor areas. So they move into their homes, they take their property, and in, by doing that, they become part of the genocidal pr process. I'd say that um, it also, to me, 
appear to explain that we cannot, when we study genocide, we should not, we cannot start at the end, when the killing begins. If we want to understand why people behave the way they do in multi-ethnic societies when the killing begins, we have to understand how they lived side by side before that. And what was it that changed them to the extent that at that point they can turn against their neighbors and betray them. Two last points I make. One is what I've called the ambiguity of goodness. Because I think that when we speak about evil, um, that's, that's an easier category. We can say that there were killers there. There were certainly some Gestapo men there who were as close to pure evil as you can imagine. Uh, and it's very hard to find anything redeeming about them. Even 20 years later, when they testify in a West German court, none of them feel any guilt. They never profess any guilt at all. Uh, but on, in the range of goodness, things become much more complicated because there are people who um, shelter Jews and then denounce them. Why would they shelter them? Sometimes because they're paid for it. But sometimes they're paid because they have to buy food for those people they're sheltering. Why do they denounce them? Because maybe the people they're sheltering ran out of money. Or maybe they can't afford any longer to buy them food. Or maybe they're afraid that their neighbors will denounce them. Or maybe they want their boots or their coats, which they are refusing to uh, remove. And so this ambiguity of goodness is the fact that most people behaved in ways that don't fall easily into one category or another. And that that was actually the normality of what was happening there. And the last thing I'll say, um, not to keep you here too long, is that for me, and particularly in the last few years, not when I started doing this research a long time ago, but only in recent years, I started thinking of this case of Buchach as a case that is not only exemplary of parts, a large part of what happened in the Holocaust or happened in other genocides, but also, if you like, exemplary of the fragility of any society, of how we believe that we can trust the law, we can trust law enforcement, we know we come back from work, we say hello to our neighbors, we go into our homes and we feel safe. And we know that if anything goes wrong, we can call 911 and people will come and help us. And then one day we pick up the phone because there's a noise outside, it's early, it's late at night or early morning and we call the police and the police comes and arrests us. And we realize that everything that we relied on, law, law enforcement, social order, all this crust that we had built our security on has cracked. And there's no one to turn to. And the next day our neighbor may come into our home with an axe and take our television away or whatever they want. Um, and so in that sense, I, I, I felt ultimately that this story is not only a story about a, a place uh, that is very far from here, where people speak languages most of us don't know, and something that happened many decades ago, but is also relevant to our here and now. So thank you. Uh, my name is Marcus Ogun Fulaji Ajose. He's Nigerian, if you didn't know. Uh, so my question is, um, what distinguishes a Jew from a German? The first thing that um, you, you would say is that Jews are Jewish. And Germans uh, can be Jewish, can be Lutheran, can be Catholic, or most, most Germans are either Lutheran or Catholic. Um, uh, but Jews also see themselves as an ethnic group. Uh, an ethnic group that has its own traditions, not only religious traditions, but also um, traditions that dated back and associated with uh, its ancestry uh, in the land of Judea or Palestine. Um, and th the last thing I'd say, because this, uh, this could be a whole lecture and I'm, I don't want to uh, give a lecture now in, on Jewish history, but the last thing I would say is that 
Uh, you can have German Jews, you can have American Jews, you can have Polish Jews. Uh, so um, Jews could be German Jews, and they could be American Jews, and they would be both Jewish and part of the nationality that they belong to. And now, as you may know, uh, only recently, for the first time, uh, the largest numbers of the, um, the largest Jewish group in the world live in Palestine or in Israel, meaning that uh, for the first time since the exile, uh, more Jews live in a Jewish country than had lived since uh, the exile in the first century. My name is Piotr Kucharski. I'm from Poland, so this is some kind of, some kind of like closed uh, topics for me. Uh, I would like to ask you how general you think, based on your other studies, the case mm -hmm. of Buchach was. Like, how, mm -hmm. is it um, like this pattern of very few people from representing the Nazi state uh, were sort of involving ordering local population and mm -hmm. uh, to to kill Jews? Like, for example, if we move to other parts of former Polish state, would it be just Polish population mm -hmm. doing mm -hmm. the things mm -hmm. and like in other parts of, Euro of Eastern Europe? In some ways, I would say Buczacz is representative of a very large number of towns, whether in Lithuania or Latvia or Poland or uh, Ukraine, um, Hungary, Romania. But in each of these places, there are different um, um, stresses. So for instance, um, in the area that I'm talking about, the majority population is Ukrainian, and Poles are a minority. And Poles uh, start being targeted themselves by Ukrainian nationalists. So although the Poles were the majority population in Poland in the interwar period, in that area they're a minority, and once they are under uh, German rule, uh, and the Ukrainians uh, start exercising violence against them, uh, one thing that happens is that it's more likely, ma many Jews who survived that argue that it was more likely to find shelter among Poles than among Ukrainians because the Polish population there itself was feeling that it was targeted. So it was more amenable to helping another targeted group. That is not the case, as we know, even if you go a little bit west to Western Galicia, where there's now quite a number of studies that show the extent to which there was Polish collaboration in the killing of Jews and the, the, the Judenjagd, uh, uh, hunting down Jews by local Poles for the Germans, for profit. Um, so the circumstances change from place to place, and it has to do with the balance of populations, but I think much of the syndrome of what I'm talking about is very similar. Uh, and I, th I think that one can generalize it uh, to this entire area, as I said, the, the area of multi-ethnicity, of, of multiple ethnicities, uh, and how they interact with each other, and how that informs the manner in which the Germans do what they would have done anyway, but uh, it, it informs the nature of how that genocide occurs. Thank you. Uh, my name is Shahed. I'm one of those that goes with one name. Uh, with all of the othering demonizing, distancing as the groundwork for genocide. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that going on around us today in various parts of the world. How do we recognize a trigger point? There is a kind of sub-discipline that is about um, genocide prevention and attempts to, to identify uh, what are the components what are the symptoms that you can um, observe uh, before um, major violence occurs so as to prevent it from happening? Um, and I think you touched on some already. Uh, so first of all, when you identify certain groups as groups that are not within your universe of solidarity, they, they are not like us. They're rapists, they're robbers, they're invaders, they're cockroaches, they're vermin, whatever terms are used for them. And you say it's, the, it's all the group. There may be some good people among them, but generally they're really bad people. You are already, this does not mean the genocide will occur, of course, but you are already um, um, planting the seed for violence against these groups because they not only not belong to us, 
They're different from us. They're also threatening to us. But a second condition or precondition that is important is to have a regime in place or a powerful organization in place that can actually implement organized violence. And that's the difference between having, say, ethnic violence, uh, massacres, eruptions of popular violence, and genocide, which is organized by a state. Um, so the, the transition from othering groups to then violence against these groups, to then organize violence in the way that you actually try to eradicate the entire group is a transition from these images to one where you have a regime or a powerful organization that sets that as its goal and mobilizes its forces to implement it. Yeah, I'm Jeff Warner. Uh, and I want to ask about the Einstadtsgruppen. Mm -hmm. I always thought that the Einstadtsgruppen followed the Wehrmacht and mm -hmm. Barbarossa, and they killed mm -hmm. mm -hmm. one and a half million people in the first uh, six months. But you didn't mention them. <laughs> right. So I guess I have two parts to the question. Is what I know about the Einstadtsgruppen correct or wrong? Mm -hmm. And and they really had no role in this mm -hmm. area. What you know about them is correct, but it's also wrong. So <laughs> the, the Einsatzgruppen indeed come in behind the army, uh, and they indeed start, as of August, more or less, of 1941, uh, to kill uh, larger numbers of people, and they soon transition from, from killing only men to killing uh, entire communities. But they roll in with the Wehrmacht, and the Wehrmacht moves very quickly in. So there are a number of initial major killings in that area, one is in Stanislavov, or, or Stanislav, um, where um, about 10,000 Jews are killed in one day in, in the cemetery in, uh, in, in uh, Stanislavov, and that is done by an Einsatzgruppe. But then they move on, and the majority of the population um, is, is alive and well, and it's not even ghettoized yet. They are, they're, they're right, they're living their lives, they're fearful. Uh, and then the, the SS establishes these outposts. And these outposts do not begin the killing right away, in part because they're waiting for the construction of extermination camps. And when the extermination camps are there, then they start the waves of killing. But in this case, the extermination camp Bejet is open and then it's closed at the end of 1942, which is why there's a transition the other way around. Because the idea was that the Germans were first killing, this is the usual historiography, they were killing people one-on-one, -on -one, and then that was very difficult for the soldiers to do, and so they create the extermination camps uh, to distance the soldiers. But here, the, the balance is exactly the opposite. They start deporting people to the extermination camp, then it's closed. And so they kill them one-on-one -on -one in large numbers. And these people are not, these are not Einsatzgruppen, these are Zippo uh, Außenstelle, uh, outposts of the, of, of the security police. Uh, and that happens in many other places. So the, the, the understanding that we have of the Einsatzgruppen has been a bit skewed because of that. And often there's an overlap between what we know about the Einsatzgruppen and these killings uh, which, which are done by stationary uh, units, not mobile units. Hi, I'm Dave Gutman, and my question is, does your definition of genocide necessity necessarily be uh, between different ethnic groups? I'm thinking about the Cultural Revolution mm -hmm. in China, mm -hmm. which was state-sponsored. Mm -hmm. This is uh, a long discussion. Uh, I taught a course for many years on uh, genocide. Uh, how do you define genocide? There is one definition of genocide, which is the one of the Genocide Convention of 1948. Uh, historians can, can quibble with it and, and do, and political scientists do, and so forth, but it is the definition. In fact, according to that, you do not need uh, uh, even uh, uh, to kill a, a majority of the population. The, 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 the way the definition, which was... Uh, based on, on Rafa Lemkin's uh, uh, um, promotion of this notion of genocide, uh, his invention of the term, is that it is the eradication of a group as such, as it is defined by those who target it. So it's not the way the group defines itself, 
It's the way you define it, and your goal is to eradicate it, not necessarily by killing the people. So, for instance, taking away children, preventing birth, the, uh, cultural genocide, all of this would come under the definition of genocide. But the goal has to be that this group would cease to exist as a group, and not necessarily that its members would die. The Germans, their definition of genocide vis-à-vis -vis the Jews was to kill them. Uh, my name is Paula Tavro, and um, one thing I've always been wondering about is right on the ground, you know, when uh, Jews would be taken away, killed, was how would that apportionment of property occur? I mean, uh, was there, were there conflicts, were there mm -hmm. tribunals? Since you were right on the ground, I mm -hmm. I've always just been curious about that. Uh, the Germans, when they were killing Jews, they, they had them... Uh, hand over whatever they had, valuables and all that, and they collected them, and there's many reports on that, how much money they found in jewelry and so forth, and they send it to the SS uh, center in Lvov, and it goes to the German government. Uh, they also collect the clothes. Uh, now, those clothes that they don't like, that are too old, they discard, and then in towns like Buchach, there's a store that opens that sells clothes, sometimes soiled, sometimes with blood, to the local population. So they get some of what the Germans have discarded, then the Ukrainians and the Poles can, can get that. The property itself, um, there are many accounts of that. Uh, people move into it. There are many accounts by, by Ukrainians and Poles at the time saying people are moving into Jewish homes, and then when the Red Army starts coming, they move out of the Jewish homes because they're afraid, they say, of Jewish revenge, because they believe that it's Judeo-Bolshevism. So they move out of the homes that they took over. Um, there's also a takeover of professions. So the people are quite happy that there are fewer lawyers and doctors who are Jewish because now um, they can get these jobs. So the property is in many ways, in all genocides, uh, certainly in this one, property is at the core of everything. Uh, people profit from genocide. And it's one reason why people also uncomfortable talking about it, because decades later, there are people living in property that they know, not they necessarily, but somebody had once taken it from people who were murdered. And it creates a sense, it's not guilt, but discomfort. Hi, my name is Natalie Moreno. Um, I wanted to ask, it sounded to me that nationalism was tender for violence, and um, right now, I. I'd like to ask you about the parallels between um, what you've studied and the Trump administration, especially when it comes to um, uh, the uh, uh, migrant camps. Mm -hmm. And um, something that I also noticed was the mobilization of militias. Uh, uh, so right now, migrants are being currently um, terrorized by militias that feel empowered by this current administration to do so. so um, how do you describe the parallels and what can we do right now to stem um, further uh, violence? It's, you know, it's a very hard uh, for me to be specific because I'm an historian, um, so I feel more comfortable speaking about the past. Uh, but I would say that uh, there are elements in what we see now uh, that I find uh, deeply troubling. Uh, and they combine um, the use of this kind of terminology about entire groups uh, that is dehumanizing, the use of it by people at the top who have authority by dint of being in the White House, uh, that legitimizes this in a way that was not legitimized before, because there were always people who were racist, who were, who were xenophobic, but when it comes from the top, it gives it a, a different kind of value that there is the use of the law um, of legal institutions and of police enforcement and various other enforcement agencies in order to legalize what we can also say is immoral. Um, so all of this certainly has echoes of, um, you don't need to look at Nazi Germany, you, you, you can look at other countries in the past. Uh, or in the present, uh, that are doing that. I don't think that uh, one should make simple analogies. I don't think, think that we're talking about genocide here. 
I don't think we're even talking about ethnic cleansing, but we are talking about a, an erosion of uh, values, an erosion of what we understood as the rule of law. And I'd say the law to me is as important as what the, the, the sort of moral power of the people at the top, of the leadership, right? Because the law is what we rely on. We can't have a, a society that functions if we don't have law. But laws can be used, and in Nazi Germany certainly were used, to legitimize crime. And what we need to do is to always remember that what is legal, what is defined as legal, may be something that we object to so much that we have to declare these laws as unacceptable that these laws themselves have to be changed, that you cannot use the law in order to commit crimes. And that's a very difficult thing to do. So these are the two. One is speaking about groups that are not human, that are not part of our um, identifying of human solidarity. And the second is the use of law and law enforcement to do what we as people, as citizens, recognize as illegal. Our duty as citizens, if we believe that is the case, is to oppose it. And it's difficult because it means that you're opposing the law. It means you, you may be breaking the law. But if the law is a law that is criminal, that you believe is immoral, then I think it's your duty not to accept it. Before we close tonight, I'd like to thank the Japanese American National Museum for hosting us in this beautiful space here in downtown LA. Also thank all of you for joining us. Great to see you. Come grab a drink with us right outside afterwards in the lobby. Also Skylight Books is here selling copies of Anatomy of a Genocide, The Life and Death of a Town Called Buchach, the ninth annual uh, Zocalo Book Prize winner. And finally, a big round of applause for Mr. Omer Bartov. Thank you so much.